This morning's reading is Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. And now Susan's going to come out and explain that a little bit to us. (laughs) I hope. Isn't it all very obvious? You don't need anybody to explain it to you. (laughs) So we've been following Micah for the last couple of weeks as our Advent series. And uh, as all good TV series say, previously in Micah, we have heard that Micah, like a lawyer, has put forward the case against Israel and Judah, their leaders and their people. And he's listed many sins against them. Some of these, oppression... Rebellion, lying, idolatry, murder, greed, hypocrisy, fraud, theft, heresy, debauchery, injustice, empty ritual, and more. All that against God's people. God hates sin. It destroys It corrupts, it separates, it entangles. It's the opposite of what he stands for, and it's the opposite of how he wants things to be. His people had turned against God and his ways, and so now, because of their sin, God's judgment is coming. God stands as the righteous judge. It's a bleak picture. Now, in chapter 4, we have a shift of gear. The tone has changed. 
To me, it's like beginning to see a light at the end of a long, dark tunnel. There's a sense of anticipation and hope. That light is coming. It's not here yet in terms of where we are in Micah. It's not here yet, but we're traveling fast towards it. So let's have a look at this passage that we've had read for us. In verse 1, Micah says that one day God's reign will be re-established. There's an image there of a mountain. And in the Bible, as well as beauty and majesty, a mountain symbolizes where God rules and where God dwells. So we see this, for example, when Moses went up the mountain to meet with God and receive his law, the Ten Commandments. This is a promise of restoration. God will make things right again. So as we think about that, what does it actually mean to restore? Well, here's an example of restoring a piece of furniture In the first picture, we can see it was spoilt and worn, perhaps with age and spillages and being bumped about. But now in the second picture, it's been made as good as new, just as it was first intended to be. I'm not an expert. Many of people will know a lot more than me about this, especially Richard Fasham, I would say. But that piece of furniture would not look good being restored by just being painted over. It needs stripping right back and then building back up again, layer by layer. And to restore, we have to get to the root of the problem, not just surface stuff. So God is promising here to restore. Now, we all know that a promise is only as good as the promise maker. I'm sure we can all think of times when promises have been made and then broken, whether intentionally or not. But for God to make a promise is different altogether. Because of his character and his power, and because of our experience of God in the past, we can know for sure that God will and can keep his promises. So despite his people turning well away from him and doing terrible things, he is promising that one day he will restore things back to how they should be, back under his rule. And the people can trust him in his promises because they are covenant people. Later on in Jeremiah 31, he tells them, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. The people have well and truly broken their side of this covenant or agreement, but God has not. He will find a way to restore. Because although he hates sin, he absolutely loves his people and he longs to bring them back to himself. Time and time again, he calls them to turn back to him. And time and time again, they fail him. But a salvation plan is going to unfold. So, so far we have a promise of restoration. But today's passage is also a picture of restoration. What will it be like when God has restored Verses 2 to 8 tell us, 
Where the people used to worship idols and false gods, many nations will now be brought close to God, into his presence, and they'll worship him. God will dwell amongst his people, and they will walk in his ways, his path. Disputes will be settled. What was once used to destroy and bring death and violence, so swords and spears, will now be used to plant and bring life. A land of war and shame and fear will be restored to God's ways of peace and blessing. And that's symbolised by sitting under fig trees. The passage goes on to say the lame will be gathered, the exiled assembled, kingship will come to them. It's a big picture of God bringing restoration and renewal rather than discarding and destroying. So, so far, we have the promise of restoration. God says it will happen. And a picture of restoration, what it will look like when it happens, which together brings a message of hope. Hope is a very difficult concept to define, isn't it? Some of us will remember that in the 1980s, Terry Waite, who was a special envoy for the Church of England, travelled to Lebanon to try and secure the release of hostages. And he himself was then held captive for nearly five years. And he says in his book that he survived by keeping hope alive. Now, hope isn't some sort of vague wish like hoping it's chips for tea or hoping the bus will come soon. But in this sense, hope is holding on in faith and trust in God. So this hope of restoration will be what will keep people going through exile, which is the next chapter of Micah. We didn't read all of that because we thought there was maybe a lot of poetic stuff already. But if you want to carry on and read that, um, Micah basically predicted that the Babylonians would captive the people of God. And this was 100 to 150 years before that happened. Okay, so he predicted it even before Babylon became a powerful empire. That was his prophecy. And Micah predicted an end to their kings, which was a drastic statement to the people of Judah who thought their kingdom would last forever. Micah said that Babylon would destroy the land of Judah and carry away its king, but that after a while God would help his people return to their land, which is exactly what happened. And if you want to read further, you can read about that in 2 Chronicles 36 and Ezra 1 and 2. So we know that for God's people, extremely tough times were coming, even more tough times. But hope in God's salvation will keep them going. And our hope in God is also what can keep us going through struggles in our own lives and in what we see around us in the world today. And then that's where Micah 4 ends. But I can't leave it like that. Although we know now from Micah that restoration is coming and a bit of what it will look like, we don't know how it's coming from that passage except that we do know now, with the benefit of hindsight, what the salvation plan was. 
Spoiler alert for next week, sorry, but I'm taking some already to give us this hope and remind us of what it's about. It's the answer that we've been waiting for. How? How is God going to restore his people? So, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is God's rescue plan. He is the way back to God. Jesus came into this muddled and spoilt world where sin destroys, and through his death, he paid the penalty for sin. He took that judgment for us all, and through his resurrection, conquered even death. He offers each one of us forgiveness and life in all its fullness right now, as well as eternal life with God. And when we repent of going our own way, and turn back to walking in his way and live in him, we are forgiven and we are restored. Back to how God intends us to be, in a right relationship with him. That's the salvation plan that we know and experience and rejoice in. I love to hear the stories of how people individually come to know Jesus and his forgiveness and new life. And I know that there's a huge range of stories in this room of how that happened for each of us. Perhaps we can share those with each other as we go along. So we have four puzzle pieces here. Remember the picture of the mountain at the beginning? Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made about God's rule and God's dwelling among his people. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is Emmanuel, God with us. Back in Micah's day, they didn't yet know that Jesus would be the answer, but they did have that promise of restoration and the picture of restoration to bring them hope that one day, somehow, salvation will come. Now, we experience that salvation in part, knowing Jesus for ourselves and living for him here on earth. One day, we will know him in full, being with him face to face, and we hold on to that hope with expectancy. Dan's going to come now and tell us about a modern-day picture that might help us more in our understanding of this. There's the wonderful verse in the passage that we have heard today. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Susan's already shared the spoiler alert. Jesus is coming and one day his kingdom will come here and there will be no more war, no more fighting. And the implements of battle will no longer be necessary. Restoration of this world will have taken place. That's God's kingdom that we have to look forward to. But some have already started this work of turning the implements of violence into something beautiful. Let me just share with you about two that you may already be aware of, but that may inspire you as well to play your part in the restoration of God's kingdom. So firstly, the knife angel. Now, you're probably aware of the knife angel, which is the National Monument Against Violence and Aggression. It was developed by the National Ironworks Centre, and it's a work of art that travels around the country with the aim to raise awareness of the dangers of knife and violent crime and educate young people on their harmful effects. 
It's made out of over 100,000 knives and was designed by the artist Alfie Bradley. Uh, and it's visited many different locations. Some of you may have seen it when it was here in Birmingham. But it first started outside Liverpool's Anglican Cathedral. And like I say, it's already been to Birmingham, uh, as well as Coventry a couple of years ago, and uh, it will be visiting Worcester in March of next year, if you want to go see it and haven't already. A second example, and this was set by these two men in America. These guys are called Shane Claiborne and Michael Martin, and they have taken the words of Micah 4 very literally, Micah 4 verse 3 very literally, and have launched an organization and a campaign to turn guns into garden tools. They travel around America campaigning against gun violence, which, of course, we know is a major issue in America. And uh, Michael, who is a trained blacksmith, will take the guns and actually transform them into garden tools. They can no longer be used as the instruments of death. Instead, they're used as instruments of peace and of work. Although the first example is not specifically done by Christians in its intentional plan, as far as I'm aware anyway, the second certainly is. But both of these are great examples, I think, of where they've decided to beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and play their part in God's promise that nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore, something we can all hope for and pray for.